morning. I was 17 years old, and uh, I had had my license since I was 16 and one month. You were allowed to drive back then. I, I was 17. I was working in Banff for the summer, living with my grandma. I had a little car that my, my parents gave me to drive, and, and it was fantastic. Uh, and I was I a was really confident driver for a 17-year-old. I guess it's probably because I started driving cars around the farmyard when I was about eight or nine. I, I could drive stick by about eight years old. So I was confident as a driver. Um, there's such a thing as overconfidence. No, <laughs> there is. The issue was, was, was not with my confidence in driving that day. It was just that I didn't know the city. I was driving in Calgary. I believe my cousin Josh, who was a, a year younger than me, was sitting next to me in the passenger seat. I think we were looking for a guitar shop. That would be pretty normal in my world. And I remember turning and, uh, and going down a street, making a left onto a street. I was going under an underpass and then seeing four lanes of traffic all coming toward me. Needless to say, I stopped the car. I turned around quickly and headed the other way. Uh, today, our text is about turning around. It, it raises the question of what to do when God says, you're wrong. You're, you're going the wrong way. Let's pray as we open our hearts to this text. God, I thank you um, that you inspired the writer to put down this story of Jonah in just this way. And as we look at it, Lord, we, I just want to ask um, that spirit, you would, you would move in our hearts, that you would um, awaken us to all you have for us today. Help us to hear you somehow through what I've put together here. We just trust that you'll be speaking. And so we, we open ourselves to you, Lord. Amen. Uh, we're going to read. I'm just going to read Jonah chapter 3. That's where we are in our series. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. It goes like this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, clothed, uh, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened now, when we read this section, after the events of chapters 1 and 2, we might be like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about Nineveh, <laughs> right? So we, we got so wrapped up with, like, God and Jonah and what was going on with God and Jonah and the great fish and the prayer last week that we, we, we just 
maybe forgot, but, but you'll notice this text, this, the intro to chapter 3, is almost a perfect mirror of the beginning, chapter 1. It's like Jonah reloaded, Jonah 2.0. So part one of the story, God's word comes to Jonah and he runs away. And then he's in this spiral, he's sinking down into this both physical but also spiritual slumber. And he's this inconsistent character we saw. He claims to worship God, but he doesn't even pray in that chapter. And then in chapter 2, after he's, he's um, saved, swallowed up by this great fish, it looks like he's repenting in chapter 2. It looks like it. But even in his prayer, it's, just, it's, mixed, it's mixed with self-centeredness all through it. And even in this sort, like, sort of repentance prayer, he's not taking responsibility for his life or his actions. In fact, he's like calling out other people for their false worship, for their, for their idol worship, and he's not recognizing his own. And so we read that the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, um, one um, just great biblical scholar, he, he mentions, and I don't know if we could ever tell if this is true, but he says that, um, <laughs> he suggests the fish vomits Jonah because it is so disgusted with his pretentious, false piety of this prayer that he's just so disgusted he throws him up. Um, now, I don't know if we could ever know that's true. That's one of the questions I'll ask when we get to uh, God's forever kingdom. But um, what is clear, what is clear in what we saw last week? is that Jonah's repentance is not a model for us. There are some moments that seem that he's tracking and then he's totally not. And, and yet, even so, the opening of this, of this section begins with what? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Just pause over that. Uh, we have this thing in our home where, um, so, you know, sometimes there's this moment where things are not going so well. You, you know the moment I mean. You know, there's, someone has a meltdown. Sometimes it's even one of our children. Um, they've done, it's, thank you for laughing. It was like my only joke in here, and, and you did it. Okay, thank you. Someone's done something, it's offside for the rules of our house, and then, and then we, we, we kind of pause, and, and we, when we recognize the thing that's wrong, then it, it goes like this. The person says, I am sorry, and then they say what for, because if you don't say what for, is it really an apology? It's not. I am sorry for, and then you state what you've done wrong. And then the other person says, I forgive you. And then we have this, this saying, and it, and it goes like this, fresh start, fresh start. And, and we begin again. And, and we, it's kind of like the day can just sort of wash clean, and then we start again. And so the first thing that we see in this section is that the God that we meet here is a God of second time. A second time, he said to Jonah, go to Nineveh. This is a God of fresh starts, a God who says, can we try that again now? Let's, let's try it again. God is teaching Jonah and he's teaching us that there are new beginnings. That with God, there are mulligans, there are do-overs, there are fresh starts. And so, I mean, just as we start today, how do you need to hear that again? I know that in a room this big with this many people in it, some of you need to hear that in a very specific way today. To hear from God, can we try that again? Of course, fresh start doesn't mean there are no natural or spiritual consequences for whatever the issue was. Of course not. But there is hope. It says that. 
It says you can do it this God's way this time. In Jonah's story, the next line reads, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. So I wonder what the next line in your story will read like. Maybe it will be like, then insert your name, Carl, Charlotte. Then I, he or she, then he heard the word of God to him and this time said, yes, God, I will. And he did. And by God's grace, there was this slow and sometimes bumpy growth in Christ-like character. Or, and the people around her tasted the goodness of God because of this humble, compassionate, spirit-empowered, ever-so-gradual shift in her attitude and in her life. But even then, even then, as we'll see, the road can get bumpy. Even in those newfound commitments, a life of being loved doesn't always translate. Uh, I, I saw the Blind Boys of Alabama when I was 13 years old. Now, that might not mean a lot to many of you, but they are, were, I guess some of their members have now died. They were the biggest act, one of the biggest acts in like gospel blues from the time they started in 1939. Yes. They, that's a long time continuing band. That's a long time to be in a band. When did you guys start? 39. Whoa. Okay. And there was original members. They wheelchaired them out, and they sang, and they, and they, they were brilliant. It was incredible. See, um, my dad worked for the District of Salmon Arm. And, and so unlike all of the riffraff who had to, like, stand in lines and, like, buy tickets, um, my dad, he just put the key inside the side door and opened the door, and we walked in, and I saw many concerts in that kind of way. Now, granted, I didn't have a seat to sit in, but... Let's hang on with that for the sake of illustration. You can feel pretty special in those moments. <laughs> you can feel like the rules, they just don't apply to me. I just get to walk in the back when you had to pay. Now, if we're honest, being treated as, as special, um, being seen as, as special, that can have a, like a powerful draw on our hearts. Meeting the celebrity, name dropping, being exempt from the lineup, I think we're drawn to it because feeling special feels pretty good. It, it actually is a sense of superiority that compared to other people, I have this favor that rests on me. But what if God doesn't play that kind of game? Like doesn't do favoritism? Like what if he treats us, every person that he's ever made and loves, what if he treats us with total consistency? Now we've just seen God acting with grace toward Jonah. He uses this fish to, to be a, a, a mode of his grace, to bring him back on track. And Jonah seems happy in his prayer to have received that. But to extend it? Well, look at verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Something appears to be changing inside the prophet. But when we look closer, we look at his message, it seems that whatever change there is, it's probably not gone very deep. Just look again at the message he preaches. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of their wickedness or sin. There's no mention of repentance and the need to change. There's, no, there's not a shred of hope in this message. It's only five words in the original Hebrew. It's just, you're doomed, it's coming soon. See ya. Uh, if you didn't notice, that's not a very good sermon. 
Okay. Uh, Ger- Gerald was joking in, in staff meeting. He said he was having a conversation with a friend this week, and, and in that conversation, he said, yeah, Pastor Dave's going to take 10,000 words to tell us how bad this five-word sermon is. And I said, hold on, maybe more like 4,500 words, but touche. Um, here's the question. Is this the message that God wanted Jonah to preach? We read that he obeys, he does, he goes to Nineveh, and he brings a message, like credit where it's due, but is this the message God had for him? And the reality is we don't know for sure. If you had a stack of books, uh, scholarly books on the book of Jonah, put them in two piles. It's like all the scholars I read, there was almost disagreement 50-50 about that. Some have said, well, there was, he probably said more than is recorded here. Certainly, the Ninevites do respond to God, and they talk of ending their evil and violence, so maybe he said more than this. What we do know from chapter 4 is this. The very reason that Jonah had fled in the first place is because he did not want God to be merciful to his enemies. Uh, theologian J.I. Packer has this little book called Never Beyond Hope, and it's, it's gold. And, and he says this. He says, Jonah thinks he's a national hero for running away. He's like doing a solid to the nation of Israel. Why? Because he, he knows. He knows better than God, or so he thinks. Let me just tell you, that is not a good way to start the day, um, thinking you know better than God, and yet he does. And in his pride, he runs, and I think this sermon looks like he's still running. He's still running from what God really intends from. He doesn't want to hold out hope. See, we, <laughs> and we tend to read the promises of God through his, his prophets as though they're unconditional, like they'll always come about, but we need to see that that's not true, and Jonah knows it's not true. Listen to what God himself says in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. I think it's up on the screen here. Yeah. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I planned. God will change his mind in response to human repentance. That's what God is like. It's a God who delights to show mercy to those who would have it. And Jonah hates that this is how God will treat his enemies. Now, to be fair, as we saw in in, in part one of our series, the Assyrians are the most brutal, oppressive military power the world had ever seen. They were vicious toward those they conquered, which includes the Israelites. Archaeologists, they've been uncovering the site of Nineveh for about 150 years now. And so they've got lots of information about this city and about how they did things. And there's, there's these relief panels that are in kind of like the city hall. And they just depict these awful, horrendous, brutal ways that they treat people. Skinning them alive in, in front of others to, to make an example of them you know, hanging people's heads on poles. That's just a normal day in the life of the Assyrians. And so Jonah, he just can't stomach the idea of God being merciful to these folks. I can understand his reticence. Jonah runs because he's afraid God will be merciful. So I think it's likely that Jonah's obedience to God has not gone very deep at all. It's there, but it's it's pretty shallow. This may be actually a heartless obedience. And in the end, and we see it next week in chapter 4, it leaves him bitter. And maybe we can relate. Like, 
We love the idea of God's love and his tenderness when it comes to me and when I've messed things up. Oh, you know, God knows my heart. And then someone cuts us off in traffic, and all of a sudden, we love the idea of karma. Like, I hope that catches up with you. Um, We have this sense of outrage toward injustice, unless we're the one who's done it. Unless we're the one in the wrong. Then we love the idea of grace. But what if the words in Acts 10 are, are, are true, like that God does not show favoritism? Like, what if God's mercy is vast and free, and it's not limited to people like me or people I like? Will Jonah learn it? Will he learn to love that about God? But more to the point, will we? Will we be melted by God's compassion toward us so that we would actually seek the good even of those who have wronged us? So his sermon, preached from what looks like to me a really bitter heart, it doesn't hold out an ounce of hope. What will the city do with it? Look again at verse 10. The Ninevites believed God. Five-word sermon from a bitter prophet. It's astounding. It's like the sailors in chapter 1. They just respond so quickly to God. Whatever the sum total of Jonah's words, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe he had a really pure heart behind it. I don't know. Whatever it is, it says they respond to God. They believed God. And look what happens when this news gets to the king. It says that he, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And the idea of sackcloth and ashes or or dust, that's a way of people expressing their mourning. You might remember in Jesus' most famous sermon, he starts with these eight beatitudes, and one of them says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, the mourning that Jesus has in mind here, it includes both the mourning of the general brokenness of the world around us. It's, it's like mourning over, over sin with a capital S, just the evil of the world. It, it, we feel it. We feel it, don't we? Deep in our bones. I don't have to convince anybody that the world is broken. You don't have to be religious in any, any imagination to know that the world is just messed up. You consider like the kids at the Kamloops residential school, how they were treated as you listen to stories of survivors and it makes your stomach turn because you know that this world is so deeply broken. When we think about what people are suffering in Ukraine right now, like totally oppressed, trapped by violent oppressors, and you mourn. If you have a heart, you're going to mourn, but it's more than that too. And this is really important actually. It's mourning not only of the like general brokenness of the world, but of your part in it. It's mourning over your own personal sin. It's coming to see the ways that you are a part of breaking the world. The way you've rebelled against God and hurt other people and lived in self-deception and disregarded God and his good ways and his good words. So sackcloth and ashes, this is an image of mourning. Mourning my part in the evil. And then the king makes this proclamation to the whole city. He says, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. Now, I'm not entirely sure why he mentions the animals. It's, it's, maybe it makes us laugh. I'm not sure. You know, Betsy, she gives the milk to the oppressors, and then they oppress people. I don't know. But every, I think what it's trying to say is, in total, the whole of the city, nothing, nothing should eat or drink, but just humble ourselves before God. 
And then he says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Now, the word give up, that's translated that way in the NIV, it's, it's the Hebrew word shuv. It's, it's a walking word, actually. It's a word from, like, the world of, like, walking places, which ancient people did everywhere all the time. <laughs> like, if you're walking down a path or you're driving down a one-way street in Calgary and you realize, I'm going the wrong way, then you shuv, you change directions, you start to walk in a different way. And that's what repentance means. It means a change, a shift in your mind. It's a recognition that I'm, I'm going the wrong way. And then, and then you change direction. It's like you think you're doing the right thing, and you're walking along, and then God says, um, there's this interruption. And actually, it's a judgment. It, it's a judgment on good and evil. You thought you knew what good was. You were maybe defining it for yourself, and then there's just, and then God says, no, no that's, that's not right. You're not going the right way. And you go, oh, okay. And, and you say, maybe, I, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. And so, you shoo, you, you change direction. Or you say, oh, I just thought it was something that didn't matter. I didn't, I didn't realize. And so, you've got to make a decision at that point. Or, and maybe this is probably the issue we, I, have quite often. Oh, I just thought, I thought maybe I would get a free pass on this one, and maybe you wouldn't hold me accountable in the same way that you hold others accountable. But so you have to make this choice. Do I shoot? Do I change direction at this point? Do I turn around and go a different way? Because re repentance doesn't mean I feel really bad about myself. It doesn't mean that. It might include rightly feeling like, oh my goodness, like a sense of, of guilt or a sense of, ah, that's, wow, I didn't realize I hurt you so badly. So that, that's part of it, but that's not what repentance means. It means to change direction. It's a behavior shift. It's taking a new route. Then the king concludes, who knows? God may relent and have compassion, uh, with compassion, pardon me, turn, against the same word there actually, shuv. They're, asking, they're saying if we shuv, maybe God will shuv, okay? Turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Uh, Eric Mason has a great study on Jonah, and he says this. I think he puts it well. He says, through fasting, sackcloth, and urgent prayer, the Ninevites demonstrated that they understood their situation. They gave up their entitlements to embrace their need for God. And they don't seem to think God owes them anything, owes them salvation. No, they're who knows. There's no sense of entitlement in that, is there? Now, I know when, when we read these words, fierce anger, that's, that's not an attribute of God that we always cherish, okay, or maybe even feel very comfortable with. Lots of us have memorized that verse in 1 John 4 that says God is love. And, so we, and, we, and we can't maybe seem to get our heads around how God is love accords with God's fierce anger. But like I said in the first message, God's anger is a necessary expression of his love. If God were not angry at injustice, he would not be good. He wouldn't be worthy of your worship or your love. I was talking with Rebecca Sandin this week, one of our Ukraine missionaries, and, and we were talking about this idea about how the notion that God defines good and evil, and he does judge which is which. She said that that's absolutely crucial when you're living in a war zone, that there is, there is someone outside of yourself or outside of your own culture that says, this is right or this is wrong. We need that. You don't have hope unless there is such a thing. What hope is there for those in Ukraine 
apart from the fact that God sees their suffering, God sees the injustice, and God will make just judgments and have the final word. So God's fierce anger, it actually makes sense in light of the atrocities of the Assyrians. So out of God's love, God is love, that's true, God renders a judgment. This is not good. It needs to change. You need to do something about it. And then what, what happens with that? Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, they've shoved, it said. They, they did it. <laughs> and notice too, God doesn't just hear them say, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry. He saw how they turned from their evil ways. There's an evidence of this shift that happens. Then it says, he, God, relented and did not bring on them the, the destruction he had threatened. Here is the God of mercy responding to true repentance. So the question is, we kind of think through the last chunk here, what, like, where does that leave us? What, is, what, is that, what does that mean for us? How do we connect with that? Well, Jesus actually points to this turning. He points to this text, and he does it when he's in a confrontation with a group of religious experts. It's in Matthew's gospel, and it's from chapter 12. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to start reading at verse 38. Um, it says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is essentially, to see, to, we want to see a sign. It's essentially, you need to prove yourself to us, and if we're sufficiently convinced, we will judge your ministry to be true or not. So they're putting themselves in judgment over Jesus right now, saying, prove it, prove yourself. That's what show me a sign means. It means you've got to prove yourself to me, and I'll judge you based on that. But Jesus' answer, knowing that, it's not very accommodating. Look what he says next. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was for three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's pretty cryptic, right? For these guys, Jonah, three, what are you talking about, Jesus? I don't really know. Because this is a future event, right? Jesus hasn't gone into the earth after his death. He hasn't risen again. So they have no idea what he's talking about. They're going to have to think about it. They're going to have to pay attention to Jesus' life. They're going to have to think about the scriptures and what they say about the coming Messiah. See, those who are going to understand Jesus, this is true for us right now, who, who really connect with him, there needs to be a shift away from the thinking of the Pharisees here. They're saying, you need to prove yourself to me. There needs to be a shift toward there's something going on with Jesus, and, and I need to pay attention to really look at what he's saying, what he's doing, and to see what he's all about. Like, you see the difference between those two postures of heart, right? One says, prove yourself. The other says, I need to pay attention to this guy. And then look what Jesus says next. To the point, uh, it says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. He's warning them, as, as scholar R.T. France puts it, that to fail to recognize where God is now at work is to risk ultimate condemnation. Now, as readers of Jonah's story, in, in light of all that Jesus came to do, we have to pay attention as well. Jonah offers this terse, five-word, really bad sermon 
And yet, the Ninevites had a heart that was responsive to God. They, they repented, they shooved, they changed their ways, and, and God is merciful. And now Jesus is here, and he's bringing God's saving work to its climax. And yet, the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, they are poised to miss it. They're poised to misunderstand Jesus, to try to insulate themselves from the challenge that he brings to them. Right in front of them is the only one who can ultimately heal their broken lives and their broken worlds, and they don't want to really reckon with him. Ever try to insulate yourself from the challenge of Jesus? Don't put up your hand. I'm just doing that for rhetorical effect. Ever try to insulate yourself from his words, from his message? Do you want to just pick and choose from Jesus what you want to hear and leave the rest aside? Maybe that's particularly true when we really do hear a word of judgment. You're going the wrong way. You need to change direction. Maybe it's when we hear that and it's in a significant way. And so Jesus himself takes this story of the repentance of the Ninevites as a picture of how God longs to restore and bring healing But it's also a rebuke to the Pharisees who are looking for a way to discredit him. And Jesus will have none of it. Actually, the whole of chapter 12 is revealing just who Jesus is and how we need to respond to him. He's talked about how he's greater than the temple. He's greater than the Sabbath. He says here he's greater than Solomon and greater than than Jonah. And there's no ambiguity left in Matthew chapter 12. Just listen to what Jesus says of himself. This is just before this confrontation with them. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus draws this line in the sand in front of the Pharisees and in front of us, and he says, what will you do with me? What you do with me is what you're doing with God. It's what you're doing with the life he offers. What will you do? And the question comes, what will will you do with Jesus? Let's just go back to that image of the king of Nineveh for a minute. We have this king. As one person puts it, he's like the mayor of Las Vegas, okay? It's a city that's just full of sin, and he's been a part of it. But he realizes that there's a coming judgment and that it's warranted, that he's heard the word of God somehow break through all this, and that change is needed. And then verse 6 again, the king of Nineveh rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Here's a man who gets off his throne. This throne is a symbol of his rule over the kingdom. He takes off his royal robes. These are a symbol of... His autonomy, his ability to make decisions, it's a a symbol of his power. And he lays them aside. And then he lowers himself into the ashes, into the dust. He lowers himself, setting aside the very things that made him think he had the right to choose between good and evil for himself. When you believe God, as we read, it means you come to see that God is God and that, that you are not, that I'm not. I mean, the human condition... This, this pattern of sin is basically, it's seeking to, to define good and evil for myself, uh, uh, the way I see it, and, and, and then putting myself in God's place. And so, believing God means stepping off our throne. It means laying aside our robes, this idea that we have autonomy to decide how to run the show. 
It's recognizing that I've been going the wrong way. And it's, this, it's honestly, repentance is this beautiful shift to the way that God made you to live. God's judgment is always about restoration. That's what that Jeremiah verse tells us. It's, it's to bring us back in line. But here's the question. Is there any guarantee that this king isn't going to crawl back on his throne again? How, how do we know? He's not just going to be right back on there doing the same things. I mean, what's your track record like? There's this poem by Thomas Carlyle. It's about the book of Jonah. And it says that men repent in dust and ashes, but men repent again of their repenting. I, I, I turned, but then I repented of that repentance, and I'm, and I'm going the same way. So what's, what's to say that we're not going to do the same, that we've repented, and yet we're back on the throne again? We're still wanting to play God. And as Tim Mackey says it, like, we can't even repent right. Is there any hope for people like me who can't even repent right? Who can't stay off the throne? And the answer, of course, is yes, there is. There definitely is. Just think of it. Jesus, he is the king who oversees the whole city of his cosmos that he created. The whole of creation. And, and he looks at it and he sees that we're tearing each other apart. And so in his love, he renders a judgment. And he says, that's not Okay, Jesus stands as judge over the whole of his creation, and that's good news. It's good news. And Jesus begins his ministry. Remember, what does he do? He goes to John the Baptist and says, John, can you baptize me? To which John says, what on earth are you talking about? I need to be baptized by you. And he's not wrong, okay? Because John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of people turning away from sin and to God. And so he says, why are you coming to me? And Jesus says, you need to do this for me. The one person who had never sinned is stepping into the waters of baptism. Why? He's associating himself with you and with me. Jesus steps off his throne. He lays aside his royal robes. He lowers himself all the way to death, to death on a cross, as we read in Philippians. Why? To absorb the judgment, the just judgment that he made on humanity's evil and sin, to come down and absorb it into himself, to trade places with us. And that's what our baptism, when we're baptized, that's what it pictures. It's an act of repentance, of lowering ourselves and finding that Jesus actually meets us in that lowest place. In the cross, then, we see the love of God and the judgment of God, and the grace of God all come together. And even now, some of you, and this is myself included, sometimes we are going to sense that judgment of God on us, that we're going to be walking somewhere and be like, oh, I, I need to turn to Shuv. I need to change direction. And what do we do with that? We sit like, man, I messed it up again. I can't believe it. What do we do in that place? Well, the invitation is in, again, looking to the cross where God's love and judgment and grace all meet for us, where Jesus takes it on himself and then offers his grace. My friend Dan, he shared a quote just this morning from C.S. Lewis, and it says it well. He says, a Christian is not someone who never goes wrong, but one who is enabled to repent and pick him or herself up again because of Christ's life in him or her. Today, you might be in that place where you've just got back on the throne, and you know it, and you're, make, you're calling the shots, you're making the decisions, you're defining right and wrong for yourself, 
And maybe even today, you've been hearing the judgment of God saying, you're going the wrong way, and you've been resisting. That's, that's possible. It's possible to resist. There is grace for you. Or maybe you've, you've never really turned, like we have this problem in Western cultures is that we can say, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm a Christian. Where for us, belief means like mental assent. It's like I believe something, that Jesus did something at some point. Okay, so then like I prayed this prayer one time, so I'm a Christian, right? And, and the answer is, if there's no shred of evidence that Jesus is king in your life, if, if there isn't a change in the way that you use your money or your time or how you think about other people in your relationships, there is a question there. Maybe you need to shoot to come to God for real and experience his grace for real, maybe for the first time. I, I want to I pray with you in that. And the worship team is going to come even as I do, and, and they're going to begin praying. But I, I just want let's, to, let's come to God together. This is a sermon about repentance. Maybe we should just take a moment to live in that place for a moment. God, I thank you so much that your judgments are good and right and true. I thank you that you're a God of judgment because you call wickedness what it is. And God, and yet, God, you in your love for your creation, for each of us, you intend to end all evil one day, that we would be in a world that is made perfect, and yet that world can't have me in it with my evil. And so you've made a judgment on evil and yet you've taken it onto yourself. God, we say thank you for that. And I pray for that person here who maybe has been sitting on the throne for like three weeks, for two years, and, and today, maybe it's the day where they say, okay, I'm going to come off of it, and God, in your grace, you meet us. And sometimes we crawl back on that throne, and we just have to come off it again and say, God, I come in sackcloth and ashes, and I, and I mourn my sin. And I give praise to you for your grace. So God, we need your mercy. Maybe for that person who's never stepped across that line before. They, they've seen it now, today. Maybe for the first time that there is a line in the sand and Jesus says, if you're for me, you're for me. If you're not, you're not. And God, I just pray that your, your incredible love would just rest on that person today. Your Holy Spirit would be doing a work and that they today would step over that line and say yes. Come, Holy Spirit, come move in our hearts. And Jesus, we give you glory. Amen.